Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast from Deloitte's Data Leaders Forum and Tech UK. Today, we're talking datanomics, or quantifying the economic value of data, and specifically the data held by the UK's public sector. I'm Ed Roddis, Head of Public Sector Research for Deloitte, and this is one of a series of podcasts that Deloitte and Tech UK are producing. We're joined on each by a leader in the data field who's also a member of our Public Sector Data Leaders Forum. That forum has been established with leaders across government to share common challenges and opportunities around data in the public sector. Today, I'm joined by Davin Crowley-Sweet, Chief Data Officer at National Highways. Davin, hello. Hello, Ed. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So, Davin, tell us a bit about your role and how you got into data. Oh, well, my, my role, Chief Data Officer for National Highways, and uh, really fortunate in the way we're structurally set up in our organisation, that it's it's got all the count the accountabilities it needs. So I look after everything corporately, so all data sets, mm-hmm. and everything from the governance and assurance of data, um, the architecting and engineering of data, and our data science and also our digital labs. Kind of structure it around, you know, five value propositions to the business, I suppose, if I can count correctly. And that is, we're here to set the vision and strategy for how to get the best out of our information and our data. We're here to help the business understand what data it needs to be successful. I think that's a really important part because most people, they're very quick to complain that their data is not good enough, but then you ask them what does good look like and they don't know. So we help them understand that. Third area is around making sure our information and data is fit for purpose for what you want to use it for. Fourth is making it accessible. It's no good if it's under lock and key. And the fifth is using it to generate value. So that, that that's kind of the scope of the world and, and, and how we offer it to the business. In terms of how I got into data, it was a bit of a an unusual start, I suppose. So um, I, I didn't do very well at school at all. I was then asked to leave college politely. They gave me an ultimatum. Uh, but my background was always music. I was actually a guitarist. Um, in a heavy metal band and when I was about 19 maybe 20 um, we got signed and I lived in a van and we had a record deal and we were on tour in the country different life fantastic world that lasted several years I think I must have been about 22 and uh, our, our band manager let's say he was an interesting business person and that didn't go too well so we lost everything and uh, music wasn't for me anymore the music business side at least wasn't for me anymore and uh, my next door neighbor said do you want a job on the railway I said, happy days, I'll have a go at that. And he sat me in front of a computer and he said, uh, do you know how to use a computer? And I didn't know how to use a computer and he taught me how. And uh, it was at the time where rail track was turning into network rail and they were insourcing all their maintenance management systems. And then I ended up being in charge of, um, started being in charge of all the planning for the maintenance of the West Coast mainline, finished my career in rail as professional head of data and digital for the company and then uh transitioned into roads in 2017 that's incredible that is the best origins story <laughs> I, I think we've had yet <laughs> thank you and w- when you talk about those five propositions at national highways i mean that sounds that sounds like something of a gold standard for an organization do you think that's fair i don't know i think that the data discipline you know, it's it's not developed enough to create a gold standard. You know, mm. you look at something like civil engineering or something like that. They've got an institute of civil engineers. They've got a lovely building in St James's Park. They, you know, you can be accredited. You can get qualified. Um, there's a standard work to a professional code of conduct. 
that people have, but that doesn't exist in data. Have you noticed that there's maybe one or two universities that actually offer a qualification in data itself? Plenty of people offering professional development and qualifications in the technology and then the applications that data lives in, but very few professional yeah. opportunities for the management of the data itself and ultimately the use of that data to, to change how your business works. So, I mean, I'm humbled if you think it sounds like a gold standard. That, that, that's a really proud thing for us. I think we've got a hell of a lot to learn, but I'd, I'd, I think one of the benefits of the forum of the data leaders forum is you know perhaps there's enough people to come together to create what could be the gold standard for how we look after data brilliant i mean it always strikes me that data is is really a nascent industry i mean however far we've got and however far the technology has has, has pulled us forward in the past 10 20 years it still feels nascent to me it still feels like this thing is really just starting do you think that's fair I think that's very fair. There's, there's only so many times you can call a pass or a SaaS implementation a digital transformation before you realise you're not getting the return on investment that you thought you're getting. I saw a really funny meme the other day that made me chuckle and it said, um, what instigated your company's digital transformation? A, your CEO, B, your CIO, C, COVID. And I thought that was really true. And, and, and I think remote working will probably be looked at by future versions of us as the historical event that triggered real digital transformations in organizations and data-driven organizations. So I, I, I do think we're at the start of something. I, I think historic investments have been, you know, like I said before, SaaS implementations, mm. labor as transformations, you know, you know, and not to discredit them, they might feel transformative to people, but in terms of a true transformation, I don't think you can call them that. That's brilliant. Now, I, I'm going to embarrass you at this point and say I've noticed you are listed by Data IQ as one of the 100 most influential people in data. That's pretty good, isn't it? Massively humbling. Really proud of it. My family's proud of it. I was, I was with Data IQ yesterday, actually, meeting with all the peers. So, you know, when you're in a room full of some, some giants, you've got to remember you're standing on their shoulders. So um, I'm there because of all the stories I've heard from them and how I've been able to apply. I don't think anyone gets to where they want to be alone. So it's a, a fantastic achievement. And, and I think it's what's even greater about it is the fact that the UK has developed Data IQ to begin with, you know, and they've done that to really grow that capability and get some of our data professionals recognised, you know, and their line of thinking is all around let's grow together. And, and, and I think they're a fantastic organisation. Superb. So look, let's let's crack in then. We, we're going to talk about your work on datanomics or identifying the economic value of data. Can you help set the scene a little bit on this? Because I think people generally buy the importance of data in helping us understand the world, in making products better, in giving us a good customer experience. But why does its economic value matter? At, at its heart, um, you know, I'll, I'll start with what it's not because that might set the scene. Is um we didn't put an economic value on data to make business cases work. You know, we didn't put, you know, some data is worth billions of pounds. And if you give me millions of pounds, I'll make it even more billions of pounds. That's just not what we wanted to use it for. One of the things I think is fair to say about how, you know, Western society is run, it is very much centered around finance and about capitalism and about traditional economics. And the economics of the world is governed by a number of standards. And those standards haven't changed much over the last hundred years or so. 
and they were all invented at a point when digital data didn't exist. So, you know, the rules around what we class as a tangible asset or an intangible asset, what can go on your balance sheet and what can't go on your balance sheet, they are largely things that were created in a world before digital data existed. So we had this view of the, um, you know, very simple, data is difficult to manage because the leaders of an organisation can't see it. And they can't see it because the accounting guidelines that we follow, you know, they don't include it in how you account for an organisation. You can account for all the buildings you own or all the intellectual property you own, but you can't account for the data you own. And I felt it fascinating that my Microsoft licences are worth more on our balance sheet than 50 years of data of how we have successfully, you know, planned, designed and built one of the most high performing, complex and, and safest pieces of road infrastructure in the entire planet. And I thought, how can that be right? That, you know, the data which describes how we've done that is worth nothing on our balance sheet, yet my Microsoft window licenses have a value. So we, we got thinking about that, that, that question around, you can't manage what you can't see. How can we make our data more visible to people? You know, how can we describe data in a language that people who are misunderstand data, don't get data, illiterate around data, I think is, is the word that's going around at the moment. How can we frame data in a language that they do understand? And money was part of that, you know. So we've got 120 billion pounds of tangible assets on our balance sheet. How could we show what our data looks like relative to that asset? Mm. So as an organisation, when we're making decisions, we can trade off between the two. We can see how much time are we spending as a leadership team talking about our physical infrastructure versus our virtual infrastructure. Um, there's a really powerful chart. I don't know if we can include it with the links to this. I can fish it out. And it, and it shows how the stock market and, and general market has changed since the 70s. And what you could see in this, it's wonderful graph. It shows on the left-hand showed it. So what the world looked like in 1975. And it took the S&P 500, you know, top 500 listed firms mm -hmm. in the States. And you could account for 75% or around that, maybe 85% of the value of the stock market by summing up the tangible assets on the balance sheets of those top 500 companies. If you tried to do that same exercise today, you'd be able to account for about 10% of the stock market by sewing up the tangible assets on the balance sheet. And what we're seeing over time is that the value of companies is more and more and increases to be judged by the intangible values that those companies create, as opposed to the tangible assets on their balance sheet. And we had the hypothesis that a large proportion of our intangible value is the data that we create that's ultimately used by our customers and our stakeholders in how they generate value. And that was the kind of thinking from this. So it was how can we make data more visible? How can we recognize that our value is not just created by the physical assets we own, but equally and even more so in some cases by the virtual assets that we own? And then how can we describe that, those virtual assets in a way that the organization understands? So they know they're spending the right time on it. They know the investments are right on it. And it's data, not just an afterthought of what do we do with the additional capital we have after we've thought about designing, building, operating roads and bridges. Okay. So presumably there are some organisations, I'm talking about Google, I'm talking about Facebook, who totally, totally get the economic value of what they're sitting on. So you've already touched on some of the context of why economic value 
matters. And you were alluding to it to a process that you you've been undertaking at, at national highways, in terms of in terms of ascertaining what the economic value of the data you're sat on is. Can can you tell us a little bit about what you did? Walk us through it a little bit. Really simple, actually. Is um, we applied exactly the same logic and thinking that you'd apply to um, valuing a tangible asset as, as you would an intangible asset. And um, we started with what we knew. So we knew we had, um, you know, 120 billion or so of tangible assets on our balance sheet. We also knew that our published economic return was that every one pound spent on highways, um, there was a 2.7 return. So we were able to multiply those two numbers together and get a total value of the company. You then less the the uh, the tangible assets from the, the total value and left with the what is the size of, of a more realistic view of our intangible assets. So we were left with around 200 or so billion of intangibles. We then thought about, um, you know, we're public sector. What's the best way to describe value? So isn't replacement cost isn't really good for data. You can't replace data that's no longer there. You end up with everything being priceless. So the way we wanted to do it was around um, similar to how actuaries work. Um, in how they apportion risk, we wanted to apportion intangible value. So we we split our sector into about six domains of macro stakeholders, whether that be you know major transport hubs like other road and rail, whether that be freight and logistics. You know if you're Sainsbury's and you want to get perishable goods to supermarkets and people on time, you need to know the roads aren't closed. And, and we we grouped into about six or so stakeholders. Um, we then understood what are the use cases that each of those stakeholders gets from Highways England and then how to apportion the intangible value to that, so that, that use case. And then we went through a process of working with those stakeholders to understand you know, how dependent is that use case on the data. So you might have something where they are, it, it's, it's not a high value use case, but 90% of that use case is driven by information as an example. So over time, what we've been able to do at the enterprise level, which I think was really important for us, is I can now go from a specific data set, its economic value, what use cases it serves to UK PLC, and which part of our market that use case is serving. So now the types of conversations me and my team have is, if we don't manage this data set over here, we've just shaved a proportion of value from this stakeholder over here's inability to create at the UK level. Um, and, and that was the process doing it. So very common sense, yes, we use data science to solve the problem, which was exciting because I've not seen many CDOs use data science to solve data problems. We were off always trying to solve business problems. So it was nice to use data science to solve a data problem, which is ultimately about understanding a, a truer value of our data. Very good. For, for anyone wondering why we keep interchanging national highways and highways England, you've just gone through a name change. Am I right? We, we have, and I'm not used to it. I went on a summer holiday in Cornwall, and uh, I came back to a, a different company name. So <laughs> it's, we're, all, we're all flip-flopping between the two. <laughs> we, we, we all do it. And what, what did the rest of the National Highways leadership make of this process of what you were doing? Was it a hard sell? Um, it, it was a difficult sell, but I, I look at that as a positive thing. I, I remember um, uh, my head of data... Governance and Assurance, Vicky Williams at the time, we, we asked her to go to the investment panel, you know, part of her development. I thought it was good experience. And she came out and she said, I've had a really hard time. There are a few exec members that really gave scrutiny and good, good they should. That's what they're there to do. 
And my challenge was, if you walk to that investment committee with everyone nodding yes, either two things happened. It means it wasn't new and innovative and we've done it before, you know, and in which case both of those are a bad scenario. Um, so I think it's good that it was tense. It was misunderstood. People people thought we were doing it to try and make business cases for data work. And um, over time, people have recognised it was about us creating a language of data in the language of the, the business used already of finances and money to help them better yeah. understand. And, you know, the big learning for me coming through the back of it, which has actually helped, is that, you know, our data ended up being worth or valued at £60 billion to UK PLC. Wow. To, to put that into context, you know, as I said earlier, that's half the value of the physical infrastructure. So our data is worth half the value of the road asset, you know, and while that number was important, what was important is that number relative to the other numbers. So as an organisation, you know, if we're having a senior leadership meeting, how much of our time is spent talking about the physical infrastructure and how much time is spent talking about data? Well, when you know your data is worth half the value of your physical infrastructure, it really starts shining a light on if you're spending enough time on it. Equally, you know, we've got some roadside assets that live on our balance sheet to X number of billion. And, and what we were able to show is that the data in those roadside assets is worth massively more than the roadside assets themselves. And that makes sense because it's people using the data to make a decision, which is where the value comes from. The technology is there to make sure that data is free, safe, you know, secure and, and processed properly. So they've, they've got to come together for the value to be realised. But then when you look at business cases coming in, I'm sure everyone's seen this, you, you see a, a business case for a, a technology or data project and it's 90% of the costs are in the technology and software, 5% in the project management, 4% in risk and then 1% in data. Well, when your data is worth X number of times more than the technology and half the value of your road, it really starts making the organisation think about when they do a project, are they investing proportionately to where the value is? Or have they just been buying software um, previously? So the, where it's coming to and how we've used the valuation is really to just challenge the thinking around the structure of the organisation, the capital allocation processes of the organisation and the um, employee skill set of the organisation. You know, are we an organisation that's designed and built to manage £120 billion worth of physical infrastructure? Yes, I think we are and we do it well. Are we organisation that's been designed and built to manage £60 billion worth of virtual infrastructure? No, I don't think we are. And I think we've got a lot of improvements to go. And that's ultimately what my team are go, uh, here to do, rather. But it, but it's not until we had done that valuation that really brought it to life. Um, one, one of the analogies that I use is when, when, when I was at school, I remember, you know, you were taught to add fractions together. And you were taught you couldn't add fractions together unless you had a common denominator at the bottom of the fraction. You know, you couldn't add halves to quarters. You had to convert. And that valuation is what's happened to us. So before I had on one hand physical infrastructure and on the other hand virtual infrastructure. And what we've been able to do is create that common denominator through the lens of economics and finance so that people can trade off between the two and see what one is worth relative to its counterpart in the physical space. Very, very good. Now, I'm going to play my layperson's card for a second uh, and ask you a dopey question. £60 billion worth of data. What kind of data are we talking about for, for an organisation like National Highways? W what is it? Well, there's there's everything about our physical infrastructure, and that could be what it's in, where it is, its condition, the capacity of the network, the capability of the network, the cost of the network. 
then you've got all of our HR data. We've got all the customer data that we collect. You know, building a road is a is a political act. We need a, a consent order to do that. We need the land um, acquisition, and, and we need to know who we're affecting. You know, and then there's also all the data we push out. So. My, my data covers what we call the operational side or operational technology side, as well as the um, information technology side. So every time you see a road signal or a road sign telling you a diversion route, the strobe's closed, there's going to be construction work. That's the kind of data we're talking about. And one of the examples of why that's so valuable, if you're a company like uh, Royal Mail or you're a Tesco, knowing which roads are open at night for you to be able to send your vehicles down and not be diverted into roads that don't fit your vehicles is critical for you, especially when you're in perishable goods that need to be at certain times. You know, so those data sets can become massively value externally. And, and I just want to be really, really clear as well. We're, we're talking about the valuation of data, not the monetization of data. I think there's a big yeah. difference. You know, we're, we're, we're not in the business of monetizing data. I think that would be a distraction for us. You know, we, we believe data for public good and, um, you know, we're, we're absolutely in the business of valuing our data so we know how best to treat it and to who and to what for. Very good. Now, you mentioned skills a second ago. And I, I often hear talking to people across government and, and different bits of the public sector that, that, that they struggle to recruit and retain certain skills. And, and data is one that comes up a lot. What about your workforce and your, your team? Do you have access to the skills that you need? I, I think we do have access to the skills we need. I think, you know, there's always going to be um, challenges to retaining people. You know, data folk, you know, demand for them is much higher than supply. So they're always going to go or they've always got the possibility to the highest bidder. I think what differentiates us and what really plays into the data community, which I find to be quite an altruistic group of people, is that when you work with us, you can make a real difference to public lives. You know, and in its immediate difference, you know, um, when I'm sitting on my deathbed, I, I don't want to be thinking, yes, I, I increased shareholder points by X percent. You know, that that's not what I want to be thinking of. You know, so I, I found one of the most rewarding things here is the level of autonomy people get to make a difference. You know, the level of authority they get, the level of investment they get to make a difference and the appreciation of their skill set. So, you know, when we talk about data and digital competencies, an example, I'm not just talking about your ability to code or your ability to do data quality management, as an example. You know, we've gone as far as saying, well, what's the executive level competence around the skills that you need to create the environment to make National Highways an attractive place to work and to create the environment where data can be successful? Some of our digital competence include things like agility. You know, can you make fast decisions? Um, do you accept failure and see it as learning? You know, we talk about that as a competence, you know, because those things at a senior level really shape if you're going to have a successful coding level underneath. Um, you know, if you expect coders to you, thou shalt finish this code by 930 with zero error, you know, you're not going to get it. You, you, you need to operate and think differently from both a senior leadership level or management level, as well as the practitioner level where you get the technical skills. So, you know, um, it was quoted yesterday, the, the Data IQ event. Um, and someone said, you know, digital and data transformation is a social change as well as a technical change. And we've got to make sure that the capabilities we describe for the organization cover both the social element of that change and what do we need to do differently from a leadership of the organization, as well as our ability to make sure we've got the best data scientists and the best architects and engineers.
Yeah. And you're talking about the impact that they can make in an organization like National Highways. And, and on the same theme, what kind of impact has this process had, this process of identifying the economic value of your data? I mean, has it meant any change to the way National Highways operates or is it too early to tell? No, I, I think um, first change is a change in how we allocate capital to things. You know, there was a tendency that software was the answer. Let's go out and buy the new software and that will solve the problem. Now what I see is um, a recognition that that's not the answer. Before we jump in at the software and application level, let's understand if it's a data problem. You know, do we need to fix the quality of data? Do we really need to start thinking about what data we need to be successful before hoping that simply buying, you know, replacing Oracle with SAP is going to suddenly give you the management accounting information that you didn't have before. So I've seen a, a change in that. Um, the best change I've seen is in my own team's um, self-confidence. You know, what I saw was when I joined was a group of information management, very proficient information managers who felt they didn't have the right to sit at the table you know, who, if they got an invite for a meeting, were, were over the moon because someone had considered the, that their view was important. You know, and where I see them now is they're more off the lines of, we are the guardians of a 60 billion pound asset. Yeah, we, we, we need to be at the table. We're chairing the meeting. So they've gone from wondering if they'll be invited to a meeting to chairing the meeting. I, I, I call them my data ninjas or my data lions. And, and to, see, to see them blossom in a way that, they're so much more connected with the business, so much more empowered to say something, so much more empowered and enabled to be able to do enact on that as well is, is the biggest change. And I think that's really important for data professionals. I mean, you know, like I said, you can't really get an accreditation in data. You can, you know, become a, a software engineer and you can be chartered in the technology. And, and there's lots and lots of accreditation for the software, the applications, the technology, the mechanical engineering, very little is in place for data professionals. You know, so a pat on the back, you know, a recognition that these are important people that need professional development. And, you know, that that number behind them to say, yeah, I'm here because I'm looking after this app. This, this is my contribution. You know, that's that's the biggest change I've seen and probably the one I'm, I'm most proud of. Brilliant. And where does it go from here? You've done this major one-off uh, exercise. Is it something that's going to be revisited? I mean, where does it go from here? What's the future like? I, I think it's constantly re revisited. You know, I'd love to see managing our digital assets as corporate objectives in, you know, from everything to exec down. You know, if, if you want to know if your organization's good, 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 got good quality data or not, check your CEO's objectives. You know, if they've not set an objective to their executive leaders to improve their digital assets, how can you expect it to happen? So I'd like to work at that level, making sure that there's we use the valuation to say, right, exec A, you're now accountable for 10 billion of digital assets. In three years time, we're going to come back and we're going to measure you. And if you've maintained that value, growed that value or the way you, you've handled that data has eroded that value. I think that that's one of the big things I want to do. I really feel like um. I want to shape the operating model around the valuation. What I see is organizations do an operating model and then they think, oh, can we add the data operating model on the side? 
and I'm, I'm sure from a, a Deloitte side, you, you've probably got a, an endless list of people who have contacted you to build data operating models on top of the business operating model. What I'd like to see is the data operating model be the business operating model and be a massive part of it, not designed around it or not designed on the side. Actually, we, we design around it. You know, So how as an organization do we look after 120 billion of tangible assets, but 60 billion of virtual assets? And, and how do we configure ourselves to be able to do that? So data doesn't become a side of the desk job for people. It's, it's a full profession with a with with a, a way of working in an operating model that supports it centered around the valuation which i think is something we have to continually do you know absolutely it's it, it's not something you know and um you, you look at your physical assets I, I don't know the rules i think it's do do people reevaluate the value of their physical assets on a five-yearly basis to to amend their balance sheet why, why wouldn't we do the same with data and as it's as it's virtual why couldn't we do it faster you know, could the future be the real-time valuation of? No, who knows? It's, it's just fascinating stuff, isn't it? And what lessons would you draw from this process? What would your message to other public bodies and government departments be? Don't be afraid of doing stuff differently. You know, I, I, I find there's a tendency to be very traditional and, and not take risk. And I think that's partly because the real growth of the CDO was around GDPR and the, the role became very centered around compliance to legislation. And I find that thinking and that mindset has carried on. I, I think the generation of CDOs that we need are more, much more entrepreneurial, much more business focused, much bigger risk takers. And, um, and so, so I think let, let's be a bit braver. And um, if we want to be transformative, we need to think differently and, and, and that's going to be uncomfortable. And we need to, find out a way we can support each other through that because it is difficult. You know, I, I often refer to um, when we meet as a group of CDOs that it's almost like a PTSD recovery group from working in data, which we need, because it is a tough gig. It is a really tough gig. But when you're going somewhere new, when you're at the, when you're charging over enemy lines, I suspect, you you know, you look to those leaders to be at the front. And, and I think that's where CDOs need to be. Well, I think that that's a fantastic moment to draw this to a close on. Davin, thank you so much. This has been a brilliant conversation and heavy metals loss is data's gain for sure. Thanks, Ed. Can I also thank all of you who joined us today. If you want to know more about the Data Leaders Forum or get in touch, search online for Deloitte Public Sector Data Leaders Forum and you will find us. For now, thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>